Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be back here in the mountains among God's people again. It's beautiful driving up Brown Mountain this morning, look back down and see all the fog settling in the valleys. Well, if you will, turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. So I want to begin with the question, how does God choose his people? Does God choose them based on their wealth? Does he choose them based on their appearance? Does he choose them based on intelligence or skill or something good that he sees in them before he calls them? Well, I know you folks know the answer to this. It's kind of a softball question. Uh, but I believe this is at the heart of what James wants to teach us this morning. James wants us to understand that God shows absolutely no partiality whatsoever when he calls someone to himself. And we see this demonstrated when God chose David to be the king over Israel. Samuel went to the house of Jesse, and he sees David's older brother, Eliab, and he thinks in his heart, this guy is tall, He's strong-looking. This has got to be Israel's future king. And I know all of you know what the Lord said to, to Samuel. He said, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We can all be tempted, like Samuel to judge people according to to outward characteristics and even show some partiality based on those those characteristics. And James was concerned that that the churches of his time would be tempted to fall into this outward appearance type judging and partiality. In in his book, he's particularly concerned with uh, the temptation to to judge those who are, are poor, and show them less honor, and show the wealthy more honor. And he says, when you do this, you are in danger of becoming a judge with evil thoughts. Can you folks hear me okay? I feel like I'm not coming through on the... Yeah, I'm good. Are we good back there, sound guy? It might just be my ears. One of my ears is a little clogged up, so I can't tell (laughs) if I'm coming through. (laughs) I would like to ask... Keith, since you're sitting up here front, will you pass these out? Sure, it's all good. I have kind of a odd outline this morning, so I want to make sure everybody has it. Uh, the first four verses we're going to go through is going to just be James' example of partiality. And then my second point is where it gets strange because I have three parts of the second point. So, there's really four points to this sermon, but, but the second point is just three. That's why you get in the handout so you can see where I'm going. I've been telling the, uh, I've been teaching a class to our ruling elders on how to, how to preach and, and, uh, how to lead worship. And one of the things I've told them is that, that you don't leave the congregation behind. Like if you're driving somewhere and you got somebody following you, don't you hate following somebody who like blows through stoplights and they turn right before you know where they went? Uh, so that's why I want you guys to see where I'm going uh, so you can follow that outline. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at the text now in James chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 13. So hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, do not show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, you have not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James begins in chapter 2 by saying, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The implication here is that true faith in Jesus Christ should fight against certain types of partiality. In the first four verses, James gives an example of a finely dressed man and a shabbily dressed man who both come into a Christian assembly. The person who is nicely dressed is given honor and treated with respect while the shabbily dressed poor person is spoken down to and told, sit down here at my feet. They're given no honor whatsoever. Now, I hope that this church would not be guilty of something like this. And I would guess that most churches today would not be guilty of, of looking down on somebody who walks into their congregation looking shabbily dressed and just having the outward appearance of, of poverty. But, it's always good for the Word of God to remind us of these things, even though we may not typically be guilty of them. Well, the first thing I have to do is I have to give a little disclaimer here. I want to talk about what James is not saying. James is not saying, dishonor the wealthy and always favor the poor. He's not saying that the poor have some kind of an unconditionally favored status before God and that we should always treat them a certain way, no matter what their heart condition is. That, is. that is a teaching that is called liberation theology. Anybody in here ever heard of liberation theology? Yeah, I see a few heads nodding. Uh, <clears throat> you may not understand this, but liberation theology has greatly affected our culture today, and it's taken us in a lot of the directions that we see culture and politics moving into. Liberation theology teaches that the poor are always righteous, no matter what. And they are the ones that God is always favoring. 
and that that the person who is rich or someone who has power is always evil, no matter their actions. It's, so it's, it's judgment based upon status. Interestingly, though, this this teaching does nothing to help the help the poor. Their their motive is try to is to try to help the poor, but to tell the poor that they're always right in every circumstance does not help them to see their need of a savior. Because if they're they're living in sin and continuing in, in sin, but they believe they're okay with God because they're poor, they're not really hearing the gospel. It's just another distortion of the gospel. Now, having said that. It is James' point that the world likes to favor the wealthy, and the world does like to look down on the poor. This is a general truth. And we don't want to be like the world. If you can remember back in James 1.27, James says that true religion cares about the poor. God is a God who is, is a father of the fatherless, and he loves widows. And he wants us to love those who are poor and those who are in need, and not to look down on them. And James gives three reasons to not look down on the poor, and all these reasons flow from from the character of God, from who God is. And this will be the point in your outline, point 2A. Partiality is not a Christian trait because God chooses the poor. And this is verses 5 through 7. James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Why would we disdain and look down on the poor when the scriptures tell us that God loves to choose the poor? These are the ones that that he chooses to be rich in faith. They might not be rich in outward means, but they are rich in faith. And James says they are the heirs of the kingdom. The Bible does seem to show that the poor and those who are, are, are have little power and status in the world are the ones who, who seem to come to Christ more. And there might be some practical reasons for that. I mean, you could think through the, the reasoning that poor people usually feel the curse more than rich people. So they have more difficult circumstances. And when you live in difficult circumstances... Those things continue to drive you to Christ more. You can feel your need. And not that rich people don't have that too, because you can have all the wealth in the world and still feel the big hole in your heart. But but practically speaking, poor people probably feel that need of something beyond this life more. So that could be one reason. But I believe the real reason is just that God enjoys choosing the poor because it brings him glory. And it takes glory away from man. And I think that's, that's simply what it is. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God likes to choose the weak things out of the world, the poor things out of the world, because he wants the world to see that he does not need the wealthy. 
And he loves to exalt those who the world considers useless. James goes on to say, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It must have been a a temptation in James' day for the church to see the worldly wealthy as having something that they needed. Those people have something that the church needs. And I think this is true in our day, too. Christians can be naive, and they can believe that if the elite embrace Christ, if the wealthy and those who the world cares about, if they embrace Christ, then maybe we can make peace with the world. Maybe we can gain the world more if we have their elite. And this is why I think it's very foolish of us to to make celebrity converts become teachers overnight. Have you guys seen this happen? Some celebrity comes to Christ, and the church is like, this person has got to speak for Christ now. There's no time to, to let them grow in their faith. There's no time to let them mature. They're writing books. They're at speaking engagements. And it's because of their worldly status, not because they've been called to do that. And, and we do this because we think the world might think we have something to offer if these popular people are speaking for Christ. And honestly, when we do this, we're not really honoring the elite. We're actually using them. It's a way of using them. But James tells us that the world has nothing to offer us. You cannot try to make peace with the, with the world by honoring the elite. You must make war with the world, actually, by honoring Christ above those who have worldly status. And, and when you do this, you actually are showing more honor to both poor and wealthy people when you honor Christ above all. I want to give you a quick example of someone that I believe showed honor to somebody who had worldly status, somebody who was a celebrity, uh, in a way that he was honoring Christ even above the celebrity. How many of you have heard of Kirk Cameron? Kirk Cameron, if you were, uh, I was a kid in the 80s and teenager in the 90s, and so I watched the show Growing Pains, I think was what it was called. And uh, I wasn't even a Christian then, but it was odd to me that after Growing Pains went off the air, it's like Kirk Cameron just disappeared. He was never in anything again. He was not in movies, television. And it was always odd to me that that he was such a good actor, but he's just gone. And it wasn't until after I became a Christian and learned that he became a Christian. That's why he disappeared. Uh, but Kirk Cameron tells a story about a girl that he was pursuing. He, he was a little girl crazy in his younger days. And, uh, and he had to meet this girl's father. And the father said some things to him that he wasn't ready for. So he says, the father said to him, Kirk, there's still something that you don't have. You have a lot, but you don't have the Lord. And Kirk says, I'm thinking to myself, okay, what's your point? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really interested in God. I'm not really interested in, in serving God or following Christ in any way. But here was his other thought. This is the father of a girl that I like. So I'm going to do what he says, try to please him. And so Kirk Cameron went to church with ulterior motives, and he heard the gospel for the first time. And he 
he became a Christian. Well, in my opinion, this father looked past who Kirk Cameron was in the world's eyes, and he saw a man who was lost and desperately needed Jesus Christ. And he honored Kirk Cameron by ignoring his status and sharing the gospel with him and caring about his soul. And now those of you who know anything of Kirk Cameron today know that he's an apologist. Uh, he shares the gospel a lot. He goes out in some pretty pretty hostile situations and, uh, and does apologetics. So <clears throat> praise the Lord for using this guy to care for somebody who had worldly status. Okay, so partiality is not a Christian trait because God chooses the poor to be, that is, the letter two, or the number two and the letter B, not to be or not to be. To be, it is also not a Christian trait because God's law opposes it. This is verses 8 through 11. James says, if you really fulfill the law, the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James calls the command to love your neighbor the royal law. And I believe this is because this is part, if you remember, of, of Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says the, the whole law hangs on two things, to love the Lord and what else? To love your neighbor. That's right. And Jesus said there's no other greater commands than these two, and the whole law hangs on these two, these two principles. And I think some in the church in James' day were thinking that they were loving God, so they're keeping the first commandment while they were looking down on the poor. And they thought it was possible to love God while not loving their neighbor. And I think that's why James emphasizes loving neighbor. Uh, if you will, turn over to Matthew 25. This is the logic that I think that James is following here. James actually expands a lot on Jesus' teachings in the gospel. So Matthew 25, I'm going to read verses 31 to 40. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 31 to 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these my brothers, you did it to me. I believe the reason that James leaves out 
the first part of the command to love God is because he's following Jesus' idea here that loving neighbor is loving God. The two go hand in hand. Can't do one without the other. If you are truly loving God and you have God's love planted in your heart, then you will love your neighbor and you won't look down on them no matter what their status is. <clears throat> One of the reasons I think this, this is possible, uh, possibly what James is doing here, is because of verses 10 through 11 where he talks about this, if you keep one law and don't keep the other law, then you're still breaking the law. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. It is possible that some people in the church were, were outwardly attending Christian assemblies. They're tithing, giving their money to the church. They're praying. And they're practicing all these, these good outward Christian virtues. But they were looking down on their poor neighbors. And James says that obedience in one area of the law does not excuse disobedience in another area of the law. True religion that is born of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ loves both God and neighbor because God's mercy produces love for your neighbor. So this is something to be on the lookout for in our hearts because this is one of those things that can kind of sneak up behind you or you can have a blinder onto this. Uh, do I think I love God and I'm hating my neighbor or looking down on my neighbor? Okay. Now this brings us to our last point, 2C. Partiality is not a Christian trait because of God's mercy, verses 12 to 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here James is saying, that as Christians, you should not show no partiality. You shouldn't make yourselves judges with evil thoughts because other people have external characteristics that you don't like because you have been given great mercy. There was a time that you had both inward and outward characteristics that no one liked. And that's how God found you. And if you have been given such great mercy from someone that you didn't even deserve to have it from, how can you not give it to your brother? How can you not give it to your neighbor? Mercy pays forward. When you're given mercy, you show mercy. And I want you guys to turn to Ezekiel 16. I think Ezekiel 16 is just a good poetic picture of what we were like when God found us. It is uh, it's speaking to Israel while they're in exile, and it is a message to covenant breakers, but I still think it's applicable to us for us to see just the filthiness that God found us in and everything he did to bring us out of it. So, Ezekiel 16, 
verses 4 to 14. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you, And saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold... You were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. He bestowed it on you. You were bloody and filthy and poor in your sinfulness. When God found you. But in his mercy. He didn't keep going by. He stopped. He approached you. He washed you. He clothed you. He exalted you. Not to a common person. He exalted you to royalty. You are heirs with his son. Jesus Christ. You have been brought from a pit. To sit on a throne. And that is all from his mercy. Not anything that was in you. There was nothing in you that was pleasing. He made you pleasing. And he didn't show partiality. Partiality did not keep him from loving you. So don't ever lose sight of where God has brought you from. Don't lose sight of where you started. And how far God has taken you. Follow God's example. And show the same kind of mercy and love to your neighbors. Now, in conclusion, just a few practical things I want to bring up. Try to balance this text out. First, it might be kind of difficult for us. I've already said this. Difficult for us to imagine 
that we would look down on somebody who's poor. I mean, some of us might be guilty of that, but I do think it's part of our culture to really uh, be merciful and, and polite and kind towards poor people. Hopefully this isn't something that I hope any PCA church would do, see a poor person walk in into the church and say, you sit over there where we don't have to see you. Uh, <clears throat> but there are other forms of partiality that I think that, that we probably are more tempted to veer into. We might look down on someone because of their age. Paul even talks about this with Timothy. He says, don't let, don't let them look down on you because you're young. We might look down on people because they're old, too. It can go both ways. We might look down on somebody because they maybe they dress funny. Uh, here's a good one for us here in the South. Are they northerners? Uh, are, they, are they not from the mountains? There's for you people in Newland. Uh, those strange outsiders who didn't grow up in the mountains. Are they liberal? Uh, I kind of get the feeling this is a more conservative church, but if a liberal person come into this church, would we, would we treat them harshly? Uh, homeschool can be kind of a dividing thing. Do you homeschool your kids? Do you public school your kids? Uh, are we showing partiality towards one or the other? Now, here's a personal one for me. I hope I don't offend anybody here. But I don't, I don't believe Christians should get tattoos. And I'm not going to get into the whole rationale behind why you shouldn't get tattoos. If you have a tattoo, I'm not trying to judge you. Uh, but I also think it's sinful for me to look down on somebody or treat them differently if they have a tattoo. Treat them as though they are like the unclean thing. If someone was to walk into my congregation covered head to toe, which would not be hard to find these days with tattoos, have, have piercings on their noses, their, you know, people get them up here around their eyes now. You ever seen those big, I think they call them gauges? their ears like hang down uh, that person is created in the image of God and I should treat them that way and I should treat them with honor no matter what my own opinion is of tattoos <clears throat> now having said this I don't want you to feel like you can never show any partiality in any situation I don't think that's what James is saying here there's nothing wrong with teenage girls having closer friendships with teenage girls. That's normal. That's actually healthy. There's, pro there's no teenage girls in here, so <clears throat> I don't think there are. Uh, common life experiences bring people together, and that's okay. Don't, don't think that there's some kind of evil partiality going on because of that. That's not what James is talking about here. You can have close friendships with those who have common life experiences while still honoring everyone who comes into your assembly and everyone who is part of your congregation. Finally, let's consider the grace in this passage. In verse 1, James says, As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you're doing. You're holding the faith while not showing partiality. Holding the faith implies what? That you're doing something that you're exerting, that you are acting, you're, you are putting forth effort. And as we go through the book of James, I know it's taken me a long time to go through the book of James with you folks, uh, but I hope you can see in the book of James as you go through it 
that the real trial that James is talking about is just the Christian life in general. There are trials that are going to come all throughout your Christian life. We're going to face things like poverty, our own family members, people who enter the congregation, illnesses. I've heard you folks talking about some lady who has cancer and pneumonia right now. Uh, tragedy. I mean, there, there's sometimes at, at my church where it feels like we've had funeral after funeral after funeral. But the real trial is not really those things. The trial is in here. It's how is my heart responding to those trials? And am I holding the faith while I'm going through God's providential trials that he's bringing me through in the Christian life? But what do you do when you discover that you have failed in some trial? And your heart has not reacted correctly. What do you do? Do you judge yourself without mercy? Do you give up? Do you say, well, I failed. There's no longer any point in putting forth any effort whatsoever to try to embrace the faith. Well, no. Remember that God is a God of mercy. And he doesn't just show you mercy when you initially come to him. He continues to show you mercy. None of us would persevere if God wasn't showing us mercy every day. I would say probably every second of every day. And God is the one who says mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's mostly himself that he's talking about. That flows out of his character. His mercy triumphs over judgment. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Part of passing the trials of life and holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is simply recognizing your sin. Confessing your sin like we did corporately this morning. That is the common Christian life and the ups and downs in the trials of life. So if you find yourself looking down on others and showing partiality in the way that James is saying it here, if you are guilty of what James is saying in this passage this morning, Don't deny it. Don't excuse it. Confess it. Humble yourself. Knowing that the one who freed you from bondage, the one who cleansed you when he found you in that open field, bloody and naked, is the one who will continue ongoing to show you mercy through Lord Jesus Christ. A mercy that's limits or bounds. Amen.